Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I live in America and uh, we have these... Supreme... It's a different world. It's a little bit of a different <laughs> world. Well, there might be a crossover here because our... Uh... <clears throat> We're getting a new uh, Supreme Court justice, and she yes. was asked yesterday or the day before to define a woman, and she yes. she said she couldn't do that in that context because she's not a biologist. Now, the Twitter back and forth, of course, is about how do you not know what a woman is, but oh. specifically when, within America, and this is a big problem that people don't know about, the law hasn't made explicit what a woman is it was taken as granted mm. yes a woman was just granted and now that queer theory gender ideology is having its way with our words um, the law is now allowing woman to be a feeling or to be something that one identifies into what you've been doing with your life is working with women um, to a greater or lesser extent, and a paper that you and some colleagues published was explicitly about why, within the medical field, sexed language is important. So we can step out of the courtroom and into the classroom or uh, the clinician's office for this uh, discussion. Sure. Although... Um... You know, I mean, that same question is being asked in lots of different places. Uh, it's been asked in Australia. It's been asked of many politicians in the UK that I've seen. Um, can, I, can I tell you what I wish somebody asked that question would say back? Um, because I wish that they would ask them, you know, are you wanting a sexed definition or a gendered one? Because... That you know, we are living in this world where there's more than one meaning of what is a woman. Um, and if you're specific, then you can, I guess, um, use the language as and when appropriate. Um, because there'll be some times when you'll want to use it in a gendered sense, and there'll be some times when you want to use it in a sex sense. And it's about working out when those times are. Hmm. Limiting yeah. the equivocation. Exactly. Well, it's pointless, isn't it? You know, like, what did that answer give? Um, nothing. Um, hmm. And if you're somebody who is um, working in the law, you, you need to be specific sometimes, just as you do in healthcare. Mm -hmm. When did you get into this healthcare thing? <laughs> uh, when I had a baby. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I don't know. You may think I'm a midwife or a nurse, but I'm not. Um, so uh, my background's actually in agriculture. Um, and, uh, and I have a PhD in plant physiology. But, uh, but I had a baby as a PhD student, and all of a sudden the plants weren't so interesting. 
uh, and I got uh, very interested in breastfeeding um, and uh, did a bit of field switch. So, which you can do with science. You know, a PhD is a, an apprenticeship pretty much in uh, undertaking science. And so you can move from area to area. And that's what I did. I didn't want to be inappropriate, but I was just thinking about you stopped smelling the flowers and started studying the tits or something like that. Is that what happened? Like you just kind of switched your focus from how plants thrive and live to how human beings procreate and reproduce and uh, well, no, I mean, it was really, uh, really breastfeeding was the thing that I was interested in. It wasn't something that I really knew anything about uh, until I had a baby and yeah. I became fascinated by it and, uh, and moved across, um, you know, slowly. Uh, but it's been an area that I've been working in now for, uh, for 20 years or so, wow. probably a bit more. Okay. And you're, you're um, a professor associated with... Associate I'm an associate professor, yeah, yeah, an adjunct associate professor. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so my work's a little bit broader than it now. It's not just breastfeeding, it's more infant feeding, um, and I also do work uh, to do with uh, adoption and foster care and oh, wow. childhood trauma. So, okay. um, yeah, so a few different things. So I guess we're going to talk about breastfeeding, at least for a little bit. Sure. What's up with it? <laughs> Why is it? What What does it do? What are some of the myths? Where do we begin when you, when I guess a, a mother, maybe a mother and, and a father walk in, they, they want to understand what is this thing? Should we do it? Should we not do it? What does it mean? What does it do? Well, well, it's, you know, it's, it's part of female reproduction. So it's actually, uh, I think sometimes people think that um, that reproduction, you know, starts with the sex act and ends with the birth of the baby. But actually, uh, breastfeeding is is a continuation. So um, when the baby's born, the well, actually during pregnancy, there's preparation being made uh, to feed this child when they're born. Uh, and when the when the baby's born, then other processes kick into place that mean that you know large amounts of milk are going to be produced in order to feed that child. Um, and working within a, a lot of my work is within an international context. Um, so uh, in, in places, particularly in places where sanitation is poor, where healthcare is scarce, uh, where resources are few, uh, whether a baby is being exclusively breastfed or not um, has a massive impact on their chances of survival. Um, and, you know, it's about 800,000 or so children die each year um, because they're not being breastfed as um, they really need to be. So, uh, so it's, quite a, it's quite a big thing um, and it becomes, uh, it's important everywhere. So even in wealthy countries, uh, it makes a difference whether a baby is uh, breastfed or not. But uh, it's particularly the case uh, when, like I say, resources are poor. And you can see what can happen uh, when there's an emergency because that's probably my main area of work is infant and young child feeding in emergencies. When there's an emergency and everything changes, so a resource-rich setting, like, for example, in Ukraine, can turn into something that is very, very resource-poor. Uh, and in those circumstances, uh, breastfeeding is more important and 
there's a real need to actually uh, ensure the safety of all of the infants, including those that aren't being breastfed through targeted uh, support, mm -hmm. um, because they're really at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you've lost, if there's no longer a shop where you can buy formula, if there's no longer safe mains water that you can use, uh, if that to reconstitute infant formula or to wash, if you don't have health services easily available, uh, if sanitation is poor, then you're in real trouble and, and babies can't wait. They really mm. uh, need, um, you know, an, an adult An adult could just live on water for several days or Coke or whatever, you know, like they, they don't need, a, they don't have, you know, we don't really have very specific food and fluid needs, but infants are in a, in a very different position. So they're very vulnerable. So there's a continuum between the, uh, the baby being in the womb and being nurtured and cared for by the mother's body and yes. then being outside of the womb and still being nurtured and cared for by the body. So my yes. question is, is there a big difference between what the placenta and amniotic fluid, if there's uh, actual sustenance, nutrients going into the baby uh, through that fluid, is there a difference between that system and the breast and what the breast is producing? I mean, there's a, there's a massive difference. Um, okay. I mean, when an infant's born, they they go through this incredible shift in terms of of what they need to do to be alive. And uh, and when they're in utero, they're, they're getting everything uh, via the placenta. Oxygen, um, they don't have to breathe. Sugars, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're being directly nurtured um, through the through the placenta and through the mother's blood, essentially. Uh, in some respects, that continues because milk is actually made out of blood. So, uh, but it's not blood. So it's, um, you know, so, so it's it's a very unique fluid. It's not like anything else. So, so in some respects, we'd say, yes, it's like blood. In other respects, we say it's not, it's not like blood. I mean, they have all these discussions around, um, you know, when they're talking about milk banking, uh, where, which is where um, women uh, express their milk uh, and it's processed and stored through some sort of medical facility, mm -hmm. uh, generally to be given to very premature infants um, because those actually, I mean, I talked about who's vulnerable. Uh, even in really resource-rich settings, infants that are very premature are very vulnerable and if they don't have access to breast milk, they are at increased risk of um, serious illness and, and death. And so uh, many hospitals uh, and health um, systems around the world have uh, breast milk banks um, to provide breast milk to these predominantly very um, uh, fragile infants that have been born prematurely. And uh, there's this whole discussion around how do you regulate regulatory systems and milk banking? You know, is this actually a food? Is it a medicine? Is it a, a human tissue? Uh, and, and in reality, it's, it, it's all of those things. Um, but how do, how do we regulate it? How do we classify it? Um, how do we work with it? So mm -hmm. uh, it, gets, it gets a bit complex sometimes. And different places regulate it differently. So even a premature child, uh, as soon as, uh, I guess there's a viability a date where a child uh, can't survive 
at all outside of the womb. But past that date, once they are outside of the womb, the the body itself starts to, I, I guess, the digestive system just kicks in. Whereas before, does where's the baby's digestive system while they're in the womb? What is it doing? Is it just waiting to activate? Look, I mean, it's... It is my understanding, and I'm absolutely not an expert. Like I say, I'm not a midwife. I'm not an expert on the inside stuff. I'm more an expert okay. on the outside stuff. Um, but, they, you know, babies do swallow um, amniotic fluid. Uh, so they do, like their systems are doing some work to a degree, but they're, but they're getting their nutrition by the placenta. Um, when they when they come out, you know, obviously, yes, you know, their lungs have to start working. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually, um, their gut needs to start working as well. Uh, they, they start developing their um, microbiota, yeah. which is, you know, the bacteria that we have, you know, all over us and inside of us. More than um, us, actually. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so that's where... Um, you know, even how they, you know, how they're being born can impact that. So whether they're being born by a cesarean section or vaginally can have an impact on that. Um, if they're being born vaginally, they're going to be getting in contact um, with their mother's microbiota and that will help seed it. Whereas if they're being born um, by a cesarean section, uh, they're more likely to sort of get seeded by hospital bacteria, which is... Um, not so fabulous. Oh. Um, and there is a, a different sort of there, you know, I mean, there's still relatively early days with research uh, and this sort of thing, but, um, okay. but you know, they're wondering whether these sort of differences might explain um, some differences in um, disease outcomes and that sort of thing where babies are born by a cesarean section or vaginally. And, um, but, yeah, they also get bacteria, through breast milk as well, so and 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 also uh, factors within the milk that actually foster uh, the development of their own microbiota. Uh, so it's really complex. Okay, <laughs> does uh, it's a lot a lot of science here. Um, yes. <laughs> does does a mother's milk change uh, based on the baby, like uh, over time, like like her third child, her body's producing something that's a little bit more attenuated to the third child, whereas the first child had a slightly different milk? Uh, well, so, so there's a couple of things. So we talked about premature infants. So the, the milk that a, a woman produces when her baby is being born prematurely uh, is different to the milk that a woman will produce if her baby is born at term. So it contains um, more of the sort of protective factors um, that and and different um, uh, composition, uh, uh, you know, composition of different uh, nutrients. Um, so it's better suited to a premature infant. Um, but but generally speaking, the milk changes over the lactation rather than between okay. children. Okay. So um, so you start off with uh, the first milk, which is usually called colostrum. Um, it's very concentrated, small volume high level of um, anti-infective um, uh, factors and growth factors. Um, What's a factor? Is what the so, growth factors. Yeah, what, what, what does the word factor mean? 
A little pig toy. Um, I think it's just kind of a replacement for things. Okay. You know, or ingredients. Or okay. It doesn't doesn't mean anything okay. um, in particular. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's a very, I mean, it's a very, very, very complex fluid, which, which is why, you know, we've got it sort of um, 150 years or so of, of people um, attempting to emulate breast milk um, through you know, the creation of infant formula, uh, it's still not anything close to hmm. breast milk, although the marketing will tell people that it is. Um, it's just, it's, it is, especially early on in a child's life, um, my view is that it is more like a, a tissue than a food. So, so when you're trying to replace that with something else, um, it's in terms of how it acts in the child's body, um, it is going to be inadequate um, because you're, you've got this sort of dynamic living fluid that has thousands of ingredients um, that interacts with the body in many different ways. Um, it's, it's really difficult to try and, and um, make a replacement. So much like we have, you know, we... It, they have developed um, blood replacements for people who need um, blood transfusions but who for religious or other reasons aren't willing to have them. Mm-hmm. They're not very, um, you know, they're nothing like the real thing. Um, and so they're not used generally. They're only used when they really have no other choice. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's also the case with this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, yeah. So... How is milk created? Oh gosh, <laughs> I don't know that I can explain that in a in a simple way. I guess we need to I have mean, charts and stuff. But it... <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it's made from it's made from the blood, and it's made uh, in the breasts. And uh, if you're a human being, you have the capacity to make milk. Um, because both male and females have um, tissue in their breasts that's capable of, of making milk. Um, but it's really uh, during pregnancy that you have hormones that are acting on the breast that actually develop the structures within the breast to prepare them to make milk. Oh, okay. So um, estrogen, progesterone and prolactin um, all work together um, and... So from about sort of 15, 16 weeks of pregnancy, um, a woman will start to produce uh, small amounts of milk in her breasts. Um, and if women are pregnant, they'll, you know, they'll notice that their breasts will have gotten larger, um, they'll feel heavier, they'll feel hotter, um, they'll be able to potentially express drops of uh, milk, which is not white, it'll be yellowy in coloration. Hmm. Um, and then when the baby is born and the placenta um, is removed, 
uh, you get a large drop in progesterone because the progesterone has actually come from the placenta. Um, and that triggers the beginning of the process to make large amounts of milk. Um, and so sort of anywhere from two to sort of five days after birth, uh, that's when women start making uh, large amounts of milk and they get very full breasts. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, travel on from there. Yeah. So it starts out as an automatic process uh, where the body is actually, uh, you know, will make... Even if a woman has no intention of breastfeeding, um, her body is going to make milk after she gives birth. Um, but it then actually moves to a supply and demand process. So yeah. um, the milk will only be made if it's being removed. Um, so it's a um, yeah. So it's a process where the milk is removed, and then more milk will be made. Um, if the milk isn't removed, then the breasts get the message: this milk isn't needed. Uh, and gradually the milk production will shut down. And uh, that's probably accompanied by conscious pain, I assume. Uh, if it's done quickly, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if it's done, if it's done slowly, so, so, so you, if it's a gradual process. you wean process, the breast as you wean the child? Yes, kind of exactly. Thing. Oh, okay. Exactly, yeah. It's not uh, sort of recommended to stop cold turkey <laughs> yeah. because then you will have pain, <laughs> quite yeah. a lot of it. Right. And you said that there, uh, that the milk kind of changes composition over the course uh, of time. So yeah. what's the, uh, I know this is kind of a political or cultural issue about when do you cut the child off or when do you wean the child, let's sure. say. Um, but the yeah. breast can do it indefinitely. Uh, I mean, you could get a job as a wet nurse. It'll, it'll just keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it is really that supply and demand thing. And if the milk is being removed then um, then the milk will continue to be made. Um, I mean, sort of as an aside, it's, it's not absolutely necessary to have pregnancy in order to make milk. And so, um, you know, there have always been circumstances where, say, for an example, a, a woman has died during birth. It's still quite a common thing to happen around the world. Um, and, and until fairly recently, if... If that happened, unless somebody else breastfed the baby, it was, you know, almost a, a death sentence. Um, and so we do have this backup mechanism, uh, whereas, you know, as I mentioned, there's all these hormones that develop the breast for lactation during pregnancy. Um, but you can have um, just prolactin, just one of these hormones, can actually develop the breast tissue on its own. Mm -hmm. And prolactin uh, is released through nipple stimulation. So just putting a baby to the breast or using uh, a breast pump can actually develop the breast to make milk. Uh, and as starts off with small amounts of milk um, and as the milk is removed, more milk will be made. And, and so that's how we get uh, situations where if a mother's died, uh, somebody else can, often the grandmother or an aunt is able to breastfeed the baby. Hmm. Um, but we also see it you know, in other circumstances with adoptive breastfeeding and um, breastfeeding after surrogacy and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. The woman Lots is of a, flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> the woman can do some amazing things on demand, I suppose. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's not always easy. And, and that's, yeah. you know, why, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons why this is such a fraught topic because, a lot of women who um, who want to breastfeed 
find that they experience difficulties that they're not able to overcome um, and Such that's as... very difficult for them. Oh, look, I mean, so, you know, you're in the US, I'm in Australia. Um, lots of, lots of, I guess, uh, wealthy countries kind of lost the knowledge around breastfeeding sort of from the middle of the 20th century. Um, infant formula companies were very successful in marketing their products as scientific um, and therefore uh, better than the you know homemade stuff and um, and so we had really and they also they also engaged very successfully with the medical professionals um, in terms of educating them about their products and as a result of that a lot of knowledge around breastfeeding was lost um, a large proportion of women didn't breastfeed at all uh, and so culturally that uh, we, lo we lost the knowledge and the practice and and so it's been I think from the early 1970s on uh, a real um, process of actually regaining that knowledge uh, and regaining that culture which hasn't really it hasn't happened completely and so there's still, for a lot of women, you know, they might not have even seen a baby being breastfed until they're handed their own. And that's a really bad time to learn about uh -huh. how to, yeah. to breastfeed is when, you know, to start to learn when you're first handed your baby. And so there's, uh, I guess there's all sorts of, of challenges that, that women can face in, in feeding their infants um, and, and in getting um, appropriate uh, assistance from health professionals because that still can be quite hard to find. Oh, okay. Um, because the uh, Western medical industry has still not really considered bre breastfeeding an important. Uh, yeah, they don't, they have very generally low levels of knowledge about it. Mm -hmm. So I think for most um, sort of general practitioners, you know, doctors that, that deal with, um, just families generally uh, for in Australia and I think it is the same also in in the US um, most of their knowledge will come from their personal experiences rather than anything that they've learnt through their training oh. and so um, if they've had extensive personal experience with breastfeeding if they've breastfed their own child if their partner has breastfed their children then their level of knowledge is going to be much greater than if they haven't had children or if they um, weren't, they didn't breastfeed their children, um, then they're going to struggle very often to actually help women. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of that um, under, you know, we, we have this female data gap in research, uh, medical research, uh, where there hasn't been as much attention paid um, to women's health conditions and women's needs um, and just women in research in general. I mean, we saw it with COVID-19. Um, they didn't include pregnant and breastfeeding women in the vaccination trials, which meant that uh, when the vaccines were being rolled out, um, women were having to make decisions about vaccination based on very little evidence. Um, it's, hmm. I mean, it, it's really quite astounding that 
this sort of thing is still happening. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, and then going back to the uh, topic of the day, if we can't even define yes. what a woman is, if the language for the female is erased, that further occludes knowledge gathering and transmission because there's an extra couple steps or uh, even even just verbal steps where instead of calling a woman a woman we call her a chest feeder or a menstruator which is just, just on a linguistic level more cumbersome yeah i mean like they're they're kind of two separate issues there but we are seeing a, a decline in the uh, collection of data on sex in research. Um, so previously, you know, we had just your ordinary everyday sexism that saw the male body as the standard mm -hmm. and female bodies as just too complicated to bother with. You know, their hormones fluctuate, they get pregnant, they breastfeed. You know, um, we don't want to have to control for all those variables. So we'll just do all our research on males and, and this goes back, you know, like this is not just male humans. I mean, early drug research starts with cell lines and animals. Um, and even those were, were very much um, only being carried out um, very often with male animals mm -hmm. and male cell lines. Um, and so that was meaning that, say, it was a drug that was being studied. Um, there, there are differences in how males and female humans respond to medications. Uh, and so, so potentially drugs that would be beneficial to women but not to men weren't even getting into human trials because they weren't being identified as potentially useful because they were using male animals mm -hmm. in the early research. And so, um, so this is, you know, this is actually a, a quite a, a significant problem, which was recognised. And we had various bodies saying, no, no, you actually do need to include uh, female animals and female people in uh, medical research. Um, it's only fairly recently that that happened, only within the last 20 years. But now we've got uh, research bodies saying, don't collect data on sex. No, just don't. outright, just don't even touch sex at all? <clears throat> they'll, they'll say don't collect it unless you absolutely have to. Hmm. Um, and, like, there are some areas where it would be absolutely clear. And, and that sort of hard sort of research around um, drug development, they're still going to be collecting, you know, they'll still be including males and females in research, so that won't change. But some other areas, um, so for example, um, like we know that the pandemic has impacted um, men and women differently uh, around how they've lived their lives, um, and that particularly for uh, women who've got children, uh, who've very often been, they've been the ones who've been responsible for um, remote schooling, you know, when schools were in lockdown mm -hmm. um, and also trying to work and also always, you know, even prior to the, <laughs> the, um, the pandemic, more engaged in, um, uh, you know, household tasks. Um, so you've got women who uh, have been absolutely um, 
just slammed very often um, and their work has suffered and their careers have suffered because of this and yet you know I've been asked to be in two different bits of research or two bits of research have come my way where I thought oh I'll just see how you know what questions they are asking here around the impact of the pandemic um, and neither of them asked for my sex and it's just like how can you how is this ethical um, to actually conduct research when we know um, just anecdotally that there's been a difference in how the pandemic has impacted men and women, not, not to actually ask this question. And it, and it comes from, I think, um, I mean, I think there's just a lot of confusion um, in research, but there's also, there's, people are wanting to be kind. They're not wanting to ask people questions that they might find confronting. And they're, they're worried about, um, you know, being called uh, transphobe or bigoted or, or something. Uh, and so there's some avoidance happening there. But I don't think this helps transgender people either. Um, How? And I don't How know. How does it not? <clears throat> I do, well, I don't, I don't know if you actually read our paper um, and the uh, we had a very large supplementary file that went with it that um, included a lot of examples of the sorts of uh, issues and problems and miscommunications that can happen uh, when you inappropriately de-sex language. So, so our sort of basis with our paper was to say, um, you know, like sex is not important. The sex of somebody is not important all the time. Um, but when it's important, um, and, you know, we were talking specifically about female reproduction, so we would argue that anything to do with female reproduction, the sex of the person is actually very central to this, um, that sex language actually makes things clear. Uh, if you de-sex it, then it makes things confusing and, you you know, there's a whole heap of, of issues that can happen there. But but one of the examples that we have in our paper was a study, I think it was done in Canada, it might have been the US, that was actually on um, pregnancy involvement uh, with transgender young people. So, and pregnancy involvement was either getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant. Okay. And they were looking at, you know, what were their experiences of this and, and specifically what were their, um, you know, how did this impact their mental health? But they didn't collect data on sex or disaggregate by sex. And there is a vast difference between getting someone pregnant. Oh, come on. And no, getting there's pregnant. Not. There's not really. <laughs> it's all a social construct, right? Well, uh, I mean, you can treat it that way, but that's not helping anybody. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, and, and so I would think, you know, for somebody who is trans um, and who has particular... Um, experiences around their body, 
um, that that getting pregnant might be something that's quite challenging for them and might have an impact on their mental health. But if you're not collecting data to be able to identify that, um, then that is not serving them well at all. Oh, man. I mean, that's a whole other question. I mean, is it ethical? Is it medically ethical? Well, no, to... that should not. That should not have passed through the ethics committee without question. Well, I was just thinking, is it ethical to be on testosterone if you're pregnant as a woman to be taking supplements? I mean, I think the general recommendation is that you don't. Um, but, um, but trans men have unknowingly gotten pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a lot of, um, I guess, uh, bodies that are trying to raise awareness um, that simply taking testosterone isn't a form of contraception. Um, and that if you are engaging in heterosexual sex and uh, you're female and you may be taking testosterone, you may not be having a period, that doesn't preclude pregnancy. And so um, so there is, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, campaigns and, and sort of targeted uh, information being shared to, to let um, let people know about that. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, generally speaking, it's not considered a good idea to be taking testosterone while pregnant. And I don't know that we know what the outcomes will be for the child when that occurs. I don't think we have anywhere thing. near the sample of that. Yeah. We don't even have the significant data on uh, transition as it is, let alone no. transition during pregnancy. No. No. I mean, we don't know... Um, you know, we don't know whether there might be a carry-on too. You know, if you've been what do you mean on carry-on. Well, so if you've if you've been taking testosterone, so so when um, so when a, an infant is born, uh, a female child is born, they actually already have all of the eggs that they're ever going to have is inside of them. Hmm. So um, so somebody who is taking testosterone. A uh, female who's taking testosterone, um, that will be having an impact probably on those eggs inside their body. Testosterone, so, from what I've read, is a pretty powerful drug, and it it, it's very, it's it wiggles into it's all sorts of places, just kind of like the, yeah. the 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 male sex. We just kind of get into places. Uh, so, of course, the the eggs are going to be exposed to it. So, yeah, I, I don't, is anybody so even know. asking that question? Um, I haven't. I haven't looked to see. Um, I imagine that people will be. There will be people who will be interested in in finding out what's going on there. Um, yeah. So it's a, it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the potential impact could be, um, mm -hmm. but you could imagine that there might be, and it's certainly something that's worth looking at. And it's, um, you know, and I guess it's something that. Um, should be considered um, as a part of any uh, consent process when a female is such considering consent taking processes. testosterone. <laughs> such as they are. They're just like, here's a pamphlet. I mean, how much more fine print yeah. do you, are you going to tack on to these things? I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I think these things are dealt with differently in different places. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, absolutely that should be one of the things that is mm -hmm. raised. Um, we don't have the information 
but I think it should be to, to know absolutely what the impact might be. Um, but I think that um, that we should be um, letting people know that there may be an impact so that then they're, you know, at least making the decisions on the, you know, having had the opportunity to consider that there might be one. Mm -hmm. So how has the change in gendered language impacted your field and your wheelhouse? Uh, Is it just extra steps or is it is it forming an actual block in the development of information specifically about breastfeeding and infant rearing or is this a very first world problem so you get to run away from the first world problem and go help third world or the other no this is a this is a and this is what kind of um was a very strong impetus for me to actually gather together some colleagues and and write this paper um and that's because um and, you know, um, I'm sorry here, but I'm going to be having a little bit of a go at the US and US organisations. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the US is very uh, influential uh, culturally around the world, um, very influential in terms of so many of our international organisations are based in the US. Um, and that has a massive impact. Um, so you know, funders are based in the US as well. And so, you know, the funding is coming from the US, the pressure to change language is coming from the US without a consideration of, of how that how that might play out. And um, so, again, over the pandemic, um, as I mentioned, one of my areas is infant and young child feeding and emergencies. And so I've been very busy over the last two years or so dealing with stuff to do with the pandemic um, because uh, an infectious disease um, epidemic of any kind is is actually a real challenge for um, health providers and for mothers because um, your normal process uh, in an infectious disease epidemic is that you separate the people who are infected from the people who are uninfected to stop them from getting infected stop the disease from spreading but what do you do when the infected person is a mother um, and she has a newborn uh, and she's infected and the baby is not do you separate them do you prevent breastfeeding and we've had you know quite a um, our history with this has not been particularly good particularly with HIV so uh, when hmm. HIV first arose in the 80s and 90s, um, in uh, countries like the US and Australia, uh, this was a disease that predominantly infected um, homosexual men. Uh, but in Africa, this was actually a disease that predominantly impacted um, uh, he- heterosexual people. And in some countries, um, you know, 30% or more of pregnant women were HIV positive. And it is possible for HIV to be transmitted via breast milk. And so there was this quandary, what do we do? Do we um, support breastfeeding um, and risk the infant becoming uh, infected with HIV? Or do we recommend that um, mothers who are HIV positive not breastfeed? And initially um, that was what they came up with as the recommendation. 
They were like, HIV is a terrible disease. We don't want any infants to get it through breastfeeding. And so we will recommend that mothers who are HIV positive um, not breastfeed. And in some countries, they were supplying women with infant formula. Um, but as I mentioned to you earlier, um, uh, breastfeeding is actually really important to infant health. This is a, a tissue that babies are getting initially, you know, in their body. It's helping their own immune system to develop. Um, it contains multiple uh, ingredients that help to prevent and fight infection. Um, if infants don't have this, um, they are much more likely to um, become ill with infections. Uh, and in many parts of the world, diarrhea and respiratory tract infections that they, they kill babies um, on a regular basis mm. and so those recommendations with hiv to prioritize prevention of transmission over looking at overall risk actually resulted in the deaths of, of many thousands of infants and recommendations swung back around to actually say if a woman is hiv positive um in a resource poor setting, um, it's highly likely that it is going to be safer for her baby if they are exclusively breastfed um, than, um, than to be infant formula fed. Um, so, you know, so we got it wrong. We got it badly, badly wrong in the 90s and the early 2000s with HIV. Um, at, so when COVID came around, we were kind of faced with a similar sort of issue. If, if a woman has COVID-19, should, should she be separated from her baby um, or should they be supported to be kept together and breastfeeding encouraged? And um, the World Health Organization got it right from the very beginning. They recommended that if mothers had um, COVID, uh, that they're they keep their babies close by them day and night, that they breastfeed them, that they essentially carry on as they would have otherwise, except for, you know, wearing a mask, washing surfaces, that sort of thing, washing their hands. Um, but some countries did not um, make that recommendation. And uh, unfortunately, the, the US was one of those countries that was um, initially uh, quite keen on uh, separating mothers and infants. Um, and unfortunately, because um, the U.S. is a very influential country, many other countries followed suit. Okay. Um, it's just the infant mortality of COVID is... Like, very low. Infantismally yeah. low. And yes. even the mortality yeah. <laughs> rate of a healthy mother is really, really low. Yes. So yeah. it could be the case yeah. that children were robbed of necessary nutrients for a disease that wouldn't impact them at all so they're right. more impacted by the recommendations yes yes that's right the recommendations that were supposed to protect them were actually harming them um and so so we had so yes i have kind of spent two years railing against the u.s centers for disease control oh, how do you and, how uh, does one rail against the u.s effectively do you have any tips um well if well if one is an academic one writes papers oh okay so how um, did those go over so uh 
Uh, quite well. So, um, yeah, so three so far, another one that's um, under review at the moment. Um, I mean, I really think that there, so <laughs> that, um, that organisations like the CDC need to take, if they're going to make recommendations like this, if they're going to um, prioritise, you know, in my view, give an overweight priority in preventing transmission of infection at all costs, um, and not actually um, give sufficient weight to the importance of breastfeeding and maternal and infant proximity, mm. um, that they need to actually mitigate against those recommendations being taken up elsewhere, and particularly in countries that are, um, you know, have much less in the terms of resources. So I've spoken about this on a theoretical level. Um, and the challenges of, on a philosophical level, the challenges of certain assumptions with regard, uh, within liberalism, broadly construed about the individual and the individual rights and property rights and so on and so forth. We don't have to go into abortion. We completely avoid the abortion topic because um, that's a whole other topic. But a woman and an infant let's say, are they one organism or two? And how do you conceptualize that? And how does conceptualizing that impact medical care? Absolutely. You've... Benjamin, for somebody who um, is not working in health, <laughs> um, you, have, you have absolutely, you know, and not in this area at all, you have absolutely hit the nail on the head here. Because this was one of the issues that we really did face with COVID is that a lot of systems wanted to consider a mother and infant as being separate, um, where a mother and a newborn infant are not entirely separate beings. Their, their physiologies and psychologies are linked. And so um, they can be physically separated, but there is a, a large cost to that for both of them. Um, and it can play out, you know, in, in the long term. So even, um, even separating a mother and infant in the first few days after birth um, has a, a large impact on the ability of particularly vulnerable women to provide good enough care to that child in the long term. The, the, that linkage so, that, that will yes. survive the lifetime of the child is, is not rooted, especially if there's other uh, stresses in the environment. Yeah, that's right. So, so if you're, you know, so there has been research that's been done with particularly vulnerable women who are, you know, say young or have histories of, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, that sort of thing, um, and found that, you know, if, if you separate the mother and the baby, so if the baby goes in the hospital nursery, which they used to have a lot of, um, mm -hmm. you know, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. um, but still do in some places. Um, uh, and so if they're separated just for those few days, um, look at the situation two years down the track and those mothers and infants who are separated are much more likely to be in situations where actually the infant that, or the young child then is not in the care of the mother anymore. The child's in foster care or in care of somebody else versus when you kept the mother and infant together immediately um, from birth and so so that's sort of those environments that you provide um, early on so um, skin to skin contact early initiation of breastfeeding 
rooming in so the mother and the infant are close together in the same room um, in the days after birth. Those things um, are really very important for the mother and for the child, and particularly when you've got a vulnerable mother and infant. So, um, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, the dyad, as we talk about the mother-infant dyad, um, so they're oh. not entirely separate. They okay. are kind of, they are obviously separate individuals, but they are interconnected yeah. um, and they should be treated, um, that should be taken into consideration when you're working out how to deal with them. So, yeah. So we had lots of problems with COVID. With, well, the, the, yeah. the COVID reveals, um, or puts, puts a stress on our, our theories or our ideas of the world. And especially with this dyad, I, I really do think that um, Western philosophy, and maybe, maybe not so much certain forms of Western religion, but Western philosophy is really missing out on a huge insight into the human condition by one being written mostly by males, but really not deeply considering the process of being born and the process of, of you know, th those first, first weeks, first months, first years that women are intimately connected with uh, yeah. and, and that all of our society, our, our entire species is founded upon. It's founded upon that. It's not founded upon a man being woken up in a garden. It's found by a, a baby waking up in the arms of, of a mother and, and that little turn, it, it has huge implications, but you know, I, we don't need to get into the weeds <clears throat> there. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's why, um, I, I mean, I think it's partly why sort of mainstream feminism has had real difficulties with motherhood um, because it challenges that sort of, um, I mean, I think a lot of feminism has, has tried to consider that, um, that women are the same as men um, and that their needs are the same. Um, and that's that actually... That their values are the know, same too. Well, that their experiences are the same. And, and you, can, you can, I think, probably maintain that until the woman has a baby. And then things are different. And I know, you know, you're really into um, discussions around equity, but that's one of your most favourite words. Um, <laughs> is this, do, do Australians know what sarcasm is and are you deploying it right now? Or am I misreading? <laughs> Sorry. I forget. I forget that your uh, sense of humour might be a bit different. Um, but, um, um, you know, I mean, one of the challenges that we're facing with this idea of equity um, becoming more prominent is that, um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about infants, um, we should not be aiming for sex equity in infant care. We shouldn't see it as a goal to have the primary caregivers of newborns be equally male and female. Oh, yeah. I don't think we anybody's should, asking we should be for that, but yeah. Oh, I don't. Oh, no, really? Well, no. I, Are they? Well, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, um, you. I mean, again, you're in the U.S., one of the very few countries in the world not to actually have any maternity leave for women. Um, but uh, in other parts of the world, including in my country, 
um, where they're really ramping up the idea that we need to have. Um, so at the moment we've got, I think it's four months um, paid, government paid at minimum wage maternity leave, or it's, it's actually parental leave. So either parent can take it. Mm. Um, but it's like 95% or something taken by women, which I think is entirely appropriate. But a lot of people don't like that because they want women to be getting back to work sooner. So they're talking about bringing in um, a situation where there's equal leave for each parent. And just so, give two people two months off and just speed up the process of uh, child rearing. I mean, what they're actually proposing is six months, 12 months parental leave, six months of which has to be taken by each parent. Oh, that man! Why do they want to mandate this crap? Why can't they let people choose? I yeah. Sorry, this is my because because women aren't making the right choice. Women are choosing to be with their babies. Typical women. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, I mean, they do in some countries. So in Sweden, they have 15 months paid parental leave mm -hmm. and three months of that is reserved for each parent and the remainder can be taken by either parent. Okay. So in practice, that means that women can have 12 months paid maternity leave and the father or second mother can have uh, three months, which can be taken up until the child's three years of age. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Like that gives lots of flexibility um, and it's not, you know, women do then have the choice for to be um, with their infant for or the whole of their infancy, yeah. for the whole of their first year. That's right. They can manage it how works best for them. Um, but no, there are people that are wanting sex equity and interest care and yeah. um, that would be something that I would not support. <laughs> Well, the other the other side of the equity topic is that the different cultural groups, the outcomes of uh, these different metrics in America, we have all these different melting pot kind of thing, but we disaggregate the data and they say that this group over here is not having the same outcomes as that group over there. And it really, maybe I, I should try to phrase this as a, con, uh, as a question, but you know, we're trying to make these uh, close these disparity gaps when the kid is 18 or 20, right? In college, we're trying to even mm -hmm. the things out in yeah. college, those first 18 or 20 months. Yes. Are they not incrementally or exponentially more impactful on the outcome of the individual and then therefore their culture than year 18, year 20? I mean, if you're talking about, um, you know, and some of my work, as I mentioned to you, do work in um, to do with childhood trauma and um, foster care, out of home care. Um, and you know, one of one of the things that I do um, from time to time is I'll actually be asked um, to write an expert report for court, where there's a, a woman who's breastfeeding and there's concerns about um, 
the well-being of the child. Uh, and so child protection authorities are involved. Um, and, you know, I'll write a report to make sure that breastfeeding is actually considered in the decision-making, you know, that this is actually a strength of this relationship. All the other stuff, whatever the other issues might be, you know, whether there's concern about neglect or drug use or, or whatever it is, that's actually not my remit. I don't talk about that. But I do talk about what's going on for this mother and infant and the impact of um, separating them if they haven't been separated or the impact of termination of breastfeeding if the woman um, has maintained her lactation and her child's in foster care. Um, and, um, you know, that is absolutely on that basis, that what you're doing now is important. And so, you know, what I will say, one of the things I will say in this report is that if, if your child protection intervention results in this woman ceasing breastfeeding, then you have increased the likelihood you know, you have undermined this mother's capacity in providing care and you have increased the likelihood that that child may experience abuse or neglect in the future. So you need to be supporting this here, if you can, mm -hmm. in a way that keeps the child safe while you work out what needs to be done in the long term. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that early intervention and, you know, I, and I, I mean, I would take it back to the stuff that I was saying before. We're talking about in the... In the minutes after birth, what happens then has an impact, has an impact on the trajectory. And so mm -hmm. um, if, if uh, a woman has had, if she's experienced abuse and neglect in her childhood, if she has a history of drug abuse, um, if, uh, or domestic violence or whatever it is that, that may, has made her vulnerable to having challenges in caring for her child anything that you can do to support her early on and especially anything that you can do to support her when she has her first baby is likely to yield like quite significantly into the future and for that child because we have this intergenerational trauma where sometimes there's families where um you know, for four or five generations, the children have been in out-of-home care. They've been removed from the care of their parents because they've of inadequate um, care, you know, abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. um, and it just keeps the cycle repeats. You've got to break it. it you know, you can't keep doing the same thing. It's not getting fixed. <laughs> this is, uh, I don't know why I'm going to ask this. It's uh, probably an impossible question, or I'm not, I'm not going to phrase it kindly, uh, meaning I'm not going to give you an easy question here, but it's just something I'm thinking about. Is there a therapeutic uh, aspect of this first year for, for the mother? We, we understand conceptually that the child can't exist without the mom, but you have pointed to the impact and the meaning or the power of the relationship from the mother uh, to the child and, and uh, how things change for the woman in that process. I'm wondering, even if it's just anecdotal or, or personal, if does there... Does it change you having a baby? Well, does, does it, it change you, but is it um, is there an impact on the trajectory of the woman, her psyche, and is there is there other things, be. is there things that are yes. being rewritten um, in, in the woman by, by participating in this foundational there relationship. can be yeah yes and so there is some research around um uh you know uh so becoming a parent 
So if you have a history of interactions with the justice system and you may have been incarcerated, um, if you become a mother, you're much less likely to end up back in jail. If you're becoming a father and you're living with your child, you're also less likely to end up in prison again. And is that about sentencing so, or about the actual crimes that are being committed or the No, anti- that's about it. You know, I mean, I, I talked to you. You asked me, how did I end up doing this work? And I said, well, I had a baby. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it is it is a life-changing uh, event for, um, for, for women. And so... Um, it is a it is a time where, if there are particular challenges, it can um, set women on a on a more positive trajectory. Um, so for them, it can be a very it can be a very very positive thing, um, and you know, and for their child too, obviously, um, mm-hmm. if they're able to do that. But we don't tend to. Um, I mean, the system often just doesn't work <laughs> to, to actually do that. You know, very often it is more undermining than supportive of... um, for these, for, for really vulnerable women who are having babies. Um, uh, I think it, you know, the, the things that happen in the child protection system, the things that happen in the justice system, you know, um, they're systems they're institutions and they don't work very well with um, people. <laughs> yeah. And particularly when you've got, you know, like I say, this dyad, they don't work particularly well with this dyad. Yeah. They're, they're not set up. Uh, well, they're, they're, they're machines. And though there's all these functions, uh, all these mechanisms that are going on within the body of the woman and the body of the child during this process, process they add up to something that's far vastly superior in complexity to our institutions that our institutions it's like oil and water that i don't know how they would ever actually um be able to conceptualize that or, or treat that correctly especially if we don't have education of the people for the people who are running these systems mm-hmm. to understand the profundity of the processes involved in childbirth and, and rearing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so having a baby changed your professional life, but are there any like insights that you got or received? Any- oh, I highly recommend it. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you're, you're pro, you're pro propagation. Well, I mean, uh, like if you want to, you know, like I'm not saying that this yeah. is something that everybody should do. Um, but I do, uh, you know, like I, I found it to be very, um, you know, rewarding. And um, uh, and I think it's, um, you know, I, I think we generally speaking, um, I mean, this is another sort of reflection of a, a sexist society. We don't value the work that um, is involved in, in caring for children. Um, and caregiving in general is is undervalued, um, and so uh, you know I, I think I think that's something that um, you know like there's many good things about being a mother, um, but one of the things that I think for many women they find difficult is that 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 caregiving role that they have undertaken uh, with their children is is not valued by society. 
not valued in Western sort of um, capitalist society. Big question. I, I spent 15, 20 years working as a preschool teacher, so just my yeah. bank, bank account alone would uh, yeah, reflect exactly. your sentiment. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't, well, I mean, I mean, we talk a lot yeah. about how important it is to, um, you know, that that you know, nurturing the future generation and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't. Uh, it's not reflected in the things that we see as being important, and you know, money is part of that. Yeah, yeah. It's not a material good. It's a it's a human good, and uh, our systems of reward. Uh, broadly speaking, value the surface, they value the material, they don't value the human. And uh, to reconfigure our systems of reward to value the human, that's a huge uh, project, uh, because it, it calls into question, well, what is actually human? What is a woman? Uh, what is a man? What is what is mothering? What is giving birth? What is fathering? Uh, I mean, and then if we don't have back to the topic of the day, if we don't have gendered language and all of that's just a bunch of stereotypes that we need to dismantle constantly, then we can't even make headway into asking these very pertinent questions. How do we reward uh, mothers? Uh, how do we value them? How do we undervalue them? Do they want uh, more statues or do they want a paycheck for having babies? And where does that paycheck come from? And do we want just a bureaucratic apparatus extracting resources from the male through all these bureaucrats and then into the female. I mean, yeah, that's what, when, yeah, th th that's another question. Not an economist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who's going to re redistribute the resources. It's, it's just a lot of questions. I, so I just realized Benjamin that I didn't actually get to the end of the point about why, um, huh? you know, my concern about the language stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I talked about the pandemic and about how we were seeing um, mothers and infants separated in numbers that we've never seen before around the world. Um, uh, but what we were seeing sometimes from our um, health professional organisations and from others was, was language that was not clear. So uh, speaking of, you know, not separating parents and infants. And... Actually, it doesn't matter to a newborn baby whether they're separated from the father. It's irrelevant to them, but it matters vastly to them if they're separated from their mother. And there is that need to be specific. And we were seeing, um, you know, avoidance of you know, even in policy. So um, infants that were in neonatal nurseries or neonatal intensive care units um, because they were ill where access to those infants was being restricted, um, but policies were framed around parents. You know, so parents, one parent per day can be with the infant or one parent can spend two hours with the infant. Um, and not, not an appreciation that actually this was not, um, that it actually mattered both to disproportionately to the mother, um, but absolutely to the infant, um, whether their mother was able to be with them or not. And I guess it just really highlighted, um, first of all, how we were getting this pre pressure to change language that was coming from, um, you know, largely the US, um, but 
the organisations, our international organisations that are based in the US um, were saying this and uh, the impact was being um, disproportionately affected, you know, received in, in other in other places where mothers and infants were more vulnerable. I mean, it's also having an impact in the US. I mean, what happened over the pandemic in the US with mother-infant separation was um, just appalling. Um, but, you know, um, that this was being imposed on other places in the world um, just made me furious. And, and <laughs> added to that, it was obfuscated by the language that was being used. So by the language, this, exactly. This wasn't... If, if we're in the middle of the pandemic and we, you know, it's an emergency, it's a pandemic, and we can't clearly yeah. enunciate who this person is, who is vitally important to the infant, um, this is just crazy. Um, and I don't, I don't think that people are trying to do anything bad. I, largely, I, largely okay. As long as there's a caveat, not, 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 not the people. Well, no, not the people that, not the people within these organisations that you know that I've been communicating with and, and dealing with. They're not. Um, but I think the they hadn't necessarily thought through all of the implications, mm -hmm. um, and they hadn't. Like it's always, it is always a struggle. Um, dealing with these international organisations based in the US, that it's so US dominated, just kind of understanding that things are different in other parts of the world um, and that in having the organisation based in the US, there is an added responsibility to ensure that you are not imposing your culture and your practices and your beliefs and your priorities um, on other parts of the world. Well, what if ours are the best? Well, apparently so, Benjamin. Like, it seems that many people think that. Um, but those same people will talk a lot about, you know, colonialism and how bad it is. Hypocrisy doesn't... It's not, it's not <laughs> double speak or a double standard if it's us. Right? No. Well, you know, <laughs> it's um, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand that. And um, I appreciate your work and the insight that you've uh, graced me with. Uh, I'm not a woman, um, which brings me to my final question. Could you define a woman for me? Um, would you uh, like a, a gendered meaning or a sexed one, Benjamin? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the the more the the fun one, which is the more fun, the fun one? one? Yeah, which one's more fun? I don't, I don't know about fun. I mean, I think, like I say, I think they're useful in different places. Okay. But yeah. you know, I mean, um, in places where you know some where people ha have gender identities where that's important to them, they would say that they're a woman if their gender identity is that of a woman. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking at the, the sex meaning, then, you know, then a woman is someone who's an adult and who is of the female sex. Um, I don't think it's that hard. I don't know why that can't be said. There's but, implications. Well, there are, um, but they're, um, it's important. If it wasn't important, then, um, hmm. then nobody would be asking. And, and that's why they're asking. It's not to be cruel. It's not to be mean. It's not to 
um, blow dog whistles. It's not to um, uh, be politically aligned. Um, well, I would say it, it has become that. It's it has become that. But we needed to we need to separate that, especially when there's actual implications. Just with yeah. what we covered here tonight and other issues, sports and so on and so forth. But, I, but I would say to you, I would say to you, actually, because I've found this in talking to people in the US and Canada, um, you have the political implications in the US and Canada that just do not exist in other places. Hmm. So, um, so when, you know, I have this conversation, nobody is thinking, oh, that's part of the religious right, because we don't have a religious right. That's true. You know, it's yeah. it's not something it's not something that we have, and it doesn't exist in the UK either. And yet, we have you know lots of, of people from the US and Canada assuming a lot of things no. um, that are just um, don't have a basis because it's different in different parts of the world. So there you go. There you go, Carlene. You're doing excellent work. Um, do you have? Uh, do you have resources that you would like to share for anybody who wants to learn more or, or help out or what, what some of your organizations you'd like to plug or? Um, well, I'd love for um, people to, um, to read and share our paper. Okay. So it's in uh, Frontiers in Global Women's Health. Is I the will journal. link that in the description. It's very tightly um, written and there's a lot of citations. There's a lot of citations and supplementary file one shows you why we wrote it. Um, and you know that this is not this is not from bigotry. This is because there's actually an issue that needs to be addressed. Mm. But read it, send it to your doctors, send it to your friends, um, spread it around. We hope that it's actually it's not prescriptive, it doesn't tell people what to do. It raises what some of the concerns are ask some questions for people to consider when they're using language for themselves. Um, and, you know, we hope it's just, I guess, empowering, giving people some tools. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll continue the discussion. Yes. Um, because that's what we need to do. We can't find solutions if we don't talk. That's why we're here this evening or this morning for you. It's tomorrow morning, right? What time is it? Um, it's It's... 12 30 p.m so oh, okay. this afternoon tomorrow afternoon okay yeah. well thank you yeah. again for uh joining me i'll end the recording now you want to say goodbye to the folks at home goodbye i hope you liked the conversation <laughs>